The following three-part podcast series is intended for institutional investors who are interested in understanding the Bitcoin investment thesis from the perspective of a professional money manager. Your host, Chris Arbuthnot, is a chartered financial analyst and earned his MBA from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. During his career in asset management, Chris has managed both equity mutual fund portfolios as well as multi-asset class hedge fund portfolios. Chris has been profiled in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and Barron's, and has received numerous industry awards, including being named a rising star by institutional investor, as well as earning the top overall score across all U.S.-based mutual fund categories in Bloomberg Markets annual rankings. An excellent communicator with a passion for investing, Chris has eliminated the noise around the Bitcoin investment thesis so that institutional investors can focus only on what matters when evaluating Bitcoin as an investable asset class. You won't find another Bitcoin podcast like this. Hi, this is Chris Arbuthnot again. In part one of the podcast series, I discussed the investment thesis for Bitcoin including the two main demand drivers, which are the demand for digital money due to the efficiencies it creates and the demand for an alternative currency due to an erosion of trust underway in the fiat money system. In this podcast, part two, I will explore each further and explain why I believe they aren't at risk of reversing, ensuring long-term adoption will continue, and therefore the Bitcoin price will continue rising. I'm also going to address Bitcoin's volatility and some other Bitcoin FUD. But first, I just have to throw another disclaimer in here. I am not a fiduciary. I'm not a registered investment advisor. This is not an investment recommendation. This is my investment opinion. So the reason why there's demand for digital money is because it supports direct money technology, which makes the entire financial system more efficient. To understand why, one must understand how the current financial system works and then compare that to how it would work using digital money or central bank digital currencies. And so to start this comparison, the key here is unless you're using cash, then the money you're using is simply an entry on a ledger at a bank because that's where you store your money. And so just to repeat this, because this is a very important point, today's money is either in cash form or it's just an entry on a ledger at a bank. This means banks are very important for our financial system. They're the backbone of our financial system. And because not everyone uses the same bank, because there's thousands and thousands of banks scattered all over the world, when you want to make a payment between two people that use different banks, well, then those bank ledgers need to communicate with each other. They need to reconcile their ledgers. It's not a frictionless process. It takes time, it costs money, and it exposes you to security risks. Now compare that to Bitcoin, where each Bitcoin sits on one ledger and never moves off that ledger through its entire existence. It always stays on that one ledger. The only thing that changes is the ownership of the ledger. Now each Bitcoin is subdivisible into 100 million units known as Satoshis. So each ledger really can be subdivided into 100 million separate smaller ledgers. When Bitcoin transactions are initiated between two parties, because the Bitcoin never moves off the ledger, just the ownership changes, there's no reconciliation required among different ledgers, which means money can flow much faster between parties. And as I mentioned in part one, it's the miners that update the ledgers because when they mine Bitcoin, they don't receive the Bitcoins they've just mined until they update all the ledgers with the transactions that are waiting to be confirmed between two parties. And so I say all this to give perspective on what the financial system will look like if it's based on digital currencies, like a central bank digital currency. The key here is that you won't be storing your central bank digital currency at a commercial bank like a Bank of America or JP Morgan. Instead, you'll be storing it at the central bank. And so with central bank 
digital currencies, the transactions that occur between parties will be processed by the central bank. They will be responsible for updating the ledgers when transactions are executed between two parties. And so similar to Bitcoin, it will support direct money technology. And so because payments will be made directly between two parties, society should gravitate towards using central bank digital currencies due to the efficiencies they create. To understand why, just put yourself in the shoes of a merchant or a consumer. As a merchant, you can either receive payment via legacy fiat money, a legacy dollar, or you can receive payment via a central bank digital currency dollar. Which one would you prefer? Well, you'd prefer the digital dollar because not only do you not have to wait to receive the money because it's not traveling through an intermediary like a credit card company, but you also don't have to pay transaction fees to accept it. Therefore, you should be willing to sell goods and services at different prices depending on the currency that is used. And so if transactions are cheaper using a central bank digital dollar, well, that should encourage adoption by both merchants and consumers. And so using a digital currency is like using cash, which is why they call digital currencies like Bitcoin digital cash. And so the bottom line is that everything is more efficient with digital money than the money that we use today. And so therefore, it's reasonable to expect that society will adopt digital money whether that's the digital dollar, the digital euro, the digital yen, when they become available, society should adopt them. Which then brings up the next question, which is, okay, well, if society is going to adopt central bank digital currencies, does that mean that Bitcoin will be displaced by them? That's a fair question, but I think the answer is no for a couple of reasons. Reason number one, a digital currency doesn't solve the supply problems of fiat money in which central banks can and do print unlimited amounts of money because there's nothing naturally restraining them from doing so. And then the second reason why I think it's highly unlikely that central bank digital currencies will displace Bitcoin is because there are major privacy issues associated with central bank digital currencies. And that's because a central bank digital currency will remain on one ledger at the central bank which means that the central bank, the government, will know everything about your money. And so there will be very little privacy, which is why people should see the benefit of a non-sovereign digital commodity money, where you're identified by a number like a Swiss bank account rather than a name. Okay, so I've discussed why I believe central bank digital currencies will be adopted and why that adoption won't displace Bitcoin. But let's switch gears now and let's talk about the erosion of trust underway in the fiat money system. It's a bit of a tricky subject because it's subjective, but I will give you my opinion and the perspective of Bitcoin hodlers. And again, I'm going to use the dollar as an example because it's the currency I understand the best and because it's the world's reserve currency. And so if it suffers from any trust issues, then presumably so will all other fiat currencies because the dollar is the anchor of the financial system. Now, I'm going to start my discussion on the erosion of trust by saying there is a reason why and think intuitively about it. There is a reason why the world was on the gold standard. And that's because the intrinsic value of money is trust. And trust is a function of how controlled the supply of that money is. Because the more supply and the, and the faster that it grows relative to the economic output of an economy, all things being equal, the less purchasing power that money has. That's why gold has existed as money for thousands of years, because it doesn't matter what the price is. The supply still grows at less than 3% a year because gold isn't naturally scarce. So holders of gold can be confident it will store value and maintain its purchasing power through time. Now, just compare that to the fiat money system, to fiat money, where central banks can and do create unlimited amounts of money at no cost 
just a keystroke, something the government and central banks couldn't do when the world was on the gold standard. Consider this. Since the global financial crisis, the Fed, the ECB, Bank of England, and Bank of Japan have increased the global money supply by more than $21 trillion, or the equivalent of $1 million per Bitcoin. And unlike a commodity money, like gold or Bitcoin, which isn't issued by a government, with fiat money, not only can governments increase their money supply, the money supply, but they can also borrow money denominated in that currency, which if debts grow too large and can't be paid back when they're due, they must be monetized, which means the government must print money to pay back its maturing debt, which just increases the money supply further, causing a loss of purchasing power, which contributes to the erosion of trust. And compare this to commodity money, like Bitcoin or gold, that don't have that characteristic. There are no liabilities tied to Bitcoin or gold. And so when you ask a sophisticated Bitcoin hodler why they own Bitcoin, the argument goes something like this. Well, the U.S. money supply has exploded since the global financial crisis. Total government debt is now $30 trillion, up from $8 trillion before the financial crisis. Government debt to GDP is at an all-time high, even higher than what it was right after World War II. And the U.S. has run a budget deficit in 20 of the past 20 years. So on the surface, the fundamentals aren't good, but they're only going to get worse because 10,000 baby boomers are retiring a day. And so they're going to be drawing on Social Security and Medicare benefits, which are underfunded. So that's going to lead to bigger and bigger deficits in the future. And so the fundamentals aren't attractive and they're only going to get worse. And don't let the U.S.'s AAA sovereign credit rating fool you. That rating is effectively meaningless because all it does is measure the willingness of Congress to raise the debt ceiling. That's it. And that's because the U.S. can always print any amount of money it ever needs to to avoid default to pay back its maturing debts. And that's because all of its debts are denominated in dollars. And so my point is this. Even if the U.S. were to print 20, 30, 40 trillion dollars to pay off its maturing debts, sure, the purchasing power of the dollar would decline precipitously, but it would still be AAA rated because it hasn't defaulted. And so as a Bitcoin hodler, what I recommend people do is just be brutally honest about the fundamentals of the fiat money system. Just be brutally honest about it. Do you think the fundamentals are going to improve or do you think they're going to get worse? Because if you think they're going to improve, if you think central banks and governments are suddenly going to be a lot more careful with their finances and their money supply, then I wouldn't be in a rush to buy Bitcoin. But if you think the trend's going to continue, if you think the fundamentals are only going to get worse because there's no political will to reverse course, then under that scenario, you'd want to be looking very closely at Bitcoin. Just remember, the last time we had debt levels this high relative to the size of the economy was right at the end of World War II because military spending as a percentage of GDP had increased to 40%. But going forward after 1945, we couldn't monetize our debt because we were on the gold standard. And so the government had to rein in their finances. They had to be more careful. So what did they do? They raised taxes massively. From 1945 to 1964, the top marginal tax rate in the U.S. was 91%. And then from 1965 to 1981, it was 70%. And then Ronald Reagan came in and he cut taxes. And by the way, when he cut taxes, 1981, that is when debt to GDP troughed. So it had come down all the way from 1945 down to 1981. And then he cut taxes and that began the era we're in now, where now debt to GDP has been increasing. And now it's increased enough where it's above where we were at the end of World War II. But the difference now is that we're no longer on the gold standard. And so there's not going to be some natural mechanism that forces us to rein in our finances. 
So the question you have to ask yourself now is, is there political will to raise taxes going forward to bring our debt down to manageable levels? Or will the government just continue to monetize its debts, which is an incentive and encouragement to society to begin looking for new money alternatives? And to be clear, I'm not trying to scare people. I'm not predicting a currency collapse. What I'm saying is that society is beginning to get concerned about the fiat money system and its ability to maintain its purchasing power in the future, which is why society is looking for new money alternatives. Society is looking for an off-ramp away from the closed fiat money system. And society's picked Bitcoin. And sorry to tell you this, gold bugs, but society is not going to revert back to gold. And why am I so confident about that? Just look at the gold price. Just look at the price since 2011 when Bitcoin was priced at a dollar. It hasn't done anything. The price is down. That should be enough to just tell you that Bitcoin is displacing gold. And then when you consider analyzing Bitcoin versus gold, then it becomes clear why. Bitcoin and not gold plugs into the digital economy. We live in a digital society today. Our money needs to reflect that fact. You can't buy anything online with gold. You can't pay your suppliers with gold. You can't make payroll with gold. It's just not practical as a medium of exchange. That's why paper money backed by gold was invented because gold isn't that functional as a medium of exchange. And more importantly, the history of money teaches you that society doesn't go backwards when new money technology is available because the efficiencies a new money technology creates is a catalyst for its adoption. Think of it this way. If an alien came to planet Earth and looked at the three different money systems, gold, fiat money, and Bitcoin, and had to choose which money system to copy on their planet, it would take the alien literally half a second to make a decision. It's that obvious how much better a money system Bitcoin is than the other two systems, and we know why. Because it supports direct electronic payments between parties. It's perfectly divisible. It's perfectly portable. It's perfectly durable. It's perfectly verifiable. And it's a scarce asset because no matter what happens to the price, there will always only be 21 million Bitcoins forever, no matter what. Okay, so let's just pause and reflect on where we are with Bitcoin. Well, the best way to think about it is that we're in the trust building stage. It's just proving to society that they can trust it. And as I mentioned in part one of the podcast, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time to build trust. It requires overcoming challenges, threats, everything that you can throw against it, it involves overcoming that. And so the bottom line is that Bitcoin is not only proving that it can be trusted, but it's also just more functional as money. And so that's why society is gravitating towards Bitcoin. That's why it's adopting Bitcoin. Okay, let me switch gears and quickly talk about Bitcoin's volatility. If Bitcoin was a stock that went from a dollar in 2011 to its current price, because it has a global monopoly on digital commodity money, the largest addressable market in the world by far, would it still be considered a speculative asset just because it was a bumpy ride to get there? No way. I've worked on the buy side for a long time. And I can tell you, if this was a stock, there would be a very different narrative around Bitcoin. It would be celebrated widely. It would be championed on CNBC. Wall Street would love it. Every analyst would have a buy rating on it. But instead, it's a new emerging commodity money that society, for the most part, doesn't understand. And so it's just dismissed as a speculative asset. And because institutional investors are supposed to understand what they own so they can explain to their clients why they bought it in the first place, and because they don't understand Bitcoin, they use the excuse that it's a speculative asset. Why? Because that's the narrative out there. That's the widely accepted narrative that it's okay to say that's what it is. But that's going to change. And at some point, there will be career risk. In not understanding and owning it because if you don't understand Bitcoin, you don't own it. And if you don't own Bitcoin, then you're going to underperform your peers that do understand it and do own it. 
I think the best way to look at Bitcoin's volatility is that it's just the price of admission to own the best performing asset class in the world. That's it. And if you want to blame somebody for the volatility, well, blame the speculators. Don't blame the hodlers. The hodlers, they have that name for a reason. They're not selling. It's the speculators. They come in. They're chasing the returns. Why are they chasing the returns? Because it's the best performing asset class by far over the past decade. And so my point is this. When you think about Bitcoin's volatility, don't blame Bitcoin. It's not like a company or a stock that missed earnings. You know, maybe they misexecuted. Maybe they didn't launch a product that they needed to and their competitor did. All of a sudden, they're losing market share and so their earnings are dropping. And it's something that they had control of and they screwed up. And therefore, the stock price is volatile to reflect that uncertainty of the business. With Bitcoin, it's different. It's literally the psychology of the people that buy and sell it. And it's driven by the psychology at the margin by the speculators. But that doesn't mean it's a speculative asset. You got to separate the two. You got to separate the volatility of the returns versus the volatility of the underlying use case of Bitcoin as commodity money. Long-term adoption is increasing. It doesn't go up and down. It's going in one trend upwards. And that's because Bitcoin is superior money. And commodity money is a network effect. Right? That's why gold's been around for 5,000 years as money. Bitcoin, is it's displacing it. It has a global monopoly on digital commodity money. It's game, set, match. It's over. The award has already been given to Bitcoin. You're not going to see any other countries adopting any other cryptocurrency other than Bitcoin. But there's noise around it, and that's what causes the volatility. But again, you're compensated for the volatility with the returns that you get. And for those investors who are waiting for the volatility to drop before buying Bitcoin, well, that's like waiting for a blue chip growth stock to appear reasonably priced on standard valuation metrics before buying it. It doesn't happen until the company's growth slows dramatically, at which point the explosive stock gains have already been made. The same will be true with Bitcoin. The volatility won't drop until adoption is widespread. And so as an investor, you just have to manage the volatility. But the beautiful thing here is you don't need much Bitcoin in your portfolio to show dramatic results. My advice to institutional investors is just put 1% to 3% in your portfolio. That's it. And then rebalance it accordingly. Okay, let's switch gears and let me address some other Bitcoin FUD that's out there right now. My favorite FUD is that governments are going to shut down Bitcoin. Well, they can't. That's the whole point. It's a decentralized network that operates all over the world. The only way to shut down Bitcoin is to turn off the internet globally, which is not going to happen because that would literally crash the entire global economy. It's not going to happen. All right. So now let me address Bitcoin's energy consumption because it takes a lot of criticism for it. Yes, mining consumes a lot of electricity. And if that electricity is sourced from dirty fuels, for example, a coal power plant, then yes, mining Bitcoin is dirty. Just like driving a Tesla is dirty if the electricity used to recharge the battery came from a coal power plant. But here's the thing. Bitcoin mining requires an energy source and an internet connection. And given satellite internet capabilities, long term, nearly 100% of Bitcoin mining will be sourced via renewable sources because it will gravitate towards the lowest cost energy sources in the world, which are renewable. Compare this to the banking system, Bitcoin's chief competitor, which is capped to the energy source powering the grid that each bank is connected to. All right, so this wraps up part two of the podcast series. I encourage you to listen to part three where I discuss Bitcoin mining. It's actually uh, very intuitive. It sounds a little bit intimidating on the surface, but it's really not. It's probably one of the easiest things to understand about Bitcoin. And so I highly encourage you to listen to, uh, to part three. Thanks for your time. And don't forget to follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter.